Welcome to the Apawa Baptist Podcast. If you'd like to find out more about our church, visit us on any Sunday or online at opawa.org.nz. It's cold, isn't it? <laughs> can, I, can I say it's cold? Am I allowed to say it? <laughs> it was good to see the sun this morning, though. I have not seen that much rain in a long time. We were driving along the rivers there last night, and oh my goodness, so I've never seen them that flooded. It's, it's pretty intense. I mean, we've got floodings, we've got earthquakes. What else do we have here? <laughs> we've got everything. Um, great package. Um, this morning, we're starting a new series on the book of Job, which I think is quite appropriate for what we've been through over the last few years. So um, it, it, it's interesting, but I'm going to start with Snoopy. And uh, this little, uh, little cartoon that Snoopy, um, who, who, who was into Snoopy? I, I, am I any, yeah. You know, Snoopy was always sitting up on top of his little dog kennel thing, typing away, trying to write a book, and he'd always start it with the same thing. He would start, it was a dark and stormy night. And if you read the, the little caption there, it's quite, quite funny. He says, good luck with the second sentence, you know. Um, but it, it's kind of a cliche, isn't it? It's a humorous cliche. If we're reading a book, it's a dark and stormy night. We're like, oh, this is going to be good. You know, and you, you know, it kind of jogs your, your imagination to think, what, what are they going to be taught? What's going to happen? You know, it's a dark and stormy night. Ooh. But it's different if this is our story. If this was about us and it was a dark and stormy night, I'm not sure we'd be all that much interested in it. I think we would be a little bit fearful, uh, be a little bit of foreboding, I mean, you know, just worried feeling, you know, or even the tiredness of being in a dark and stormy night, waiting for the sun to appear, or, or worried about what's going to happen next. So it's interesting how Snoopy can have uh, such a humorous thing, but when it's actually turned upon us personally, well... It's a dark and stormy night. It doesn't seem all that appealing to us. Are you with me? Uh, there's not many people here that haven't experienced those dark and stormy nights. Um, we, we, we translate those experiences into suffering or hurt or pain. And there are not many people in this world that haven't experienced those things. No matter how well off you are, no matter how well protected you are, you still encounter suffering, hurt and pain. But there is a book in the Bible that actually talks about this. You guys with me? It's the book of Job. And, and it's an interesting book. It deals with the dark and stormy nights. Now, it's interesting when I have people come to me, and, and it happens very often, and they ask me, why does God allow this to happen? Where is God? Why God? Who's had those questions? Who hasn't had those questions, I think would be more appropriate answer a question, wouldn't it? We've all experienced it. We've had people ask us, why, who, how? If he's God, why does he let suffering happen? There's an interesting um, play that was written by um, uh, Archibald McLeish. Um, he wrote this in the play. It's about a World War II drama. And he says this, it says, millions and millions of mankind burned, crushed, broken, mutilated, slaughtered. And for what? For thinking? For walking around the world in the wrong skin? For the wrong shaped noses, eyelids? Sleeping the wrong night in the wrong city? 
London, Dresden, Hiroshima, there could never have been so many suffered more for less. But where do I come in? And throughout this whole play, there's one thing that Archibald does not do. He gives no answer to those questions. There is no answer to those questions. Philosophers for centuries are tackling the same questions, but never finding the answers. And I find it interesting when I do get these questions that I'm hit with, where is God? I ask them, have you read the book of Job? And I've got to be honest, the majority of them say no. Or some of them will say, yeah, but I didn't get it. Now, just on a side note, because I've had this come back to me, um, don't use the excuse to say reading's not for me. Because I've had that. Oh, yeah, the Bible, I, I don't read. Yeah, you do. You read. And don't tell me, you know, what it might be that's holding you back. Because I want to encourage you this morning. I'm dyslexic. I use my wife to correct what I write. And Monica can tell you some of the things I write are horrendous. I am hopeless at English. I am absolutely... When I went to Bible college, my first semester there, I did biblical hermeneutics, which is preaching, and you've got to preach the sermon, and then you've got to write it as an essay. Okay? In, in, in our parlance, in our, in our school, it was a high distinction, HD, which is like between 90 and 100 for, for my sermon, for preaching it, and a pass for the way I wrote it. Passes between 50 and 55. And the professor pulled me aside and he said to me, Rob, I passed you because I felt sorry for you. <laughs> oh, that's encouragement, isn't it? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Woo he goes, I have never seen such a disparity in how you communicate and how you write. He says, just record yourself and write it. <laughs> but, it, it, you know, so don't, don't come to me and tell me you can't read. Don't come to me and tell me that you, you just, it's called discipline, okay? And it's something we have to learn. I'm learning that at the gym this week. <laughs> 150, what are they called? Squats, those things, yes. Oh my goodness, 150 with what, a 20, 40, 60 kilo weight, yes, on our backs. <laughs> Delirious by the end of it, but hey, discipline will help you. Yes, I know some things are difficult, but we have all the tools in this world where we live to help us through it. So I want to encourage you, don't use the excuse that you don't read or it's not for you. You can do it. You can do it. Okay? So, let's take a look at Job. First of all, um, it's a funny word, Job. It's actually, uh, they don't know whether it's a Hebrew word or uh, uh, a Phoenician word. They can't figure it out, but they think it's along the lines of my enemy, the meaning of the word Job. And we pronounce it Job, not Job, uh, because the O is a oo in, uh, in, in Hebrew. So it's, it should be Job, but I can't do it that way, so it's Job, okay? Um, Job also, uh, it's a strange book. It's a strange book because there's not much about Israel's history in it. There's not much about 
where this guy comes from, how he fits into the whole history. Because when you read the Old Testament, it's full of Israel and, and its history and its, and its build-up. And all of a sudden, this book comes into place that has very little to do with Israel. In fact, there's nothing historical about Israel in it whatsoever. But the story that it talks about is a very, very old story. It's a very, very old story. Take a look. We'll start from chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. And it says this, In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels. Imagine having 3,000 camels. Um, 500 yoke of oxen and 500 donkeys. That would be very loud, I would imagine. And a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. So if we want to date this book, uh, it sounds like this is about the time of the patriarchs, the time of Abraham, because there's no money involved and they measure his wealth by what he has, by the livestock and his servants. Okay, if you read Genesis, by the time you get to, to Egypt, they're already talking money, right? But previous to that, they're talking sheep and cattle and they're exchanging it all around. So it's about that time period. But it's obvious that the book's written by an Israelite for one reason and one reason only, that they named God by the covenant name that God gave to Israel, and that is Yahweh. So the book must have been written later, definitely after Exodus, because no one else would use Yahweh's name in a writing. So it must have been written by an Israelite. Some say it might have been Moses, others say it might have been Ezekiel, because the writing style is very similar to Ezekiel. Um, but it seems like he's recounting the story about Job, who is obviously quite wealthy um, above everything else. And on top of that, it's interesting that Job is not an Israelite. He's not a Jew. He's from the land of Uz, which is most probably in Mesopotamia somewhere. We don't actually know. There's a lot of guesses. So it's interesting, again, in a book like the Old Testament, where there's all the stories about the Israelites, here we have a foreigner who is upright and blameless before God. Pretty cool, eh? Now, reading on, verses 4 to 5. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters. What good brothers, huh? How many brothers do you know that would invite their sisters to have parties with them? Not many. That must have been a cool family. Uh, to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. This is a good parent. You know, he knows what's going on. He knows these parties might be a bit dodgy. So early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And this was Job's regular custom. So Job is concerned. He's concerned about his family's well-being. So he intercedes for them before God. And he's concerned about his relationship with God and that his family's relationship with God. There's a good man. Cool? Now comes the interesting part. And this is where we're going to most probably park the car for a little bit because we're going to deal about these next few verses which really are the foundation for the rest of the book. Going from verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answered uh, the Lord and said, 
from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down it. There's a reason why I'm using the ESV on this, because the NIV uses angels, not sons of God, and I think that's wrong, and for one reason and one reason only. The word for sons of God is this, the Bene Elohim, literally meaning the sons of God. The Bene Elohim. Now, if we talk about angels, the Hebrew word for angels is this word, Malak, messengers. Now, you guys might be thinking, what, what's Rob talking about here? Well, this is going to be very important because the Bene Elohim have a special place in the Old Testament. They are a special group. Well, they might be angels. Uh, those of you who've read anything about uh, angel mythology, and there's a few Hebrew writers that have written dictionaries on angels, They've, there's this sort of hierarchy. A lot of it's conjecture. A lot of it is, well, fantasy, really. But there is an understanding that there are different forms of beings in heaven. There are the angels who are the messengers who go out and send messages and intercede between God and humans. And then there are the Ben Elohim. There is a passage in the Bible, does anyone know which one it is, that makes the Ben Elohim quite famous? No. Genesis chapter 6, verse 2, And the sons of God saw the daughters of man were attractive, and they took their wives as they chose. They are the Bene Elohim. I'm not going to go into that verse. I could preach all day on that alone. But now we need to understand that there's a difference between angels in general, the messengers, and the Bene Elohim. Um, the Jewish Midrash. Now, the Midrash is a uh, collection of uh, commentaries. Uh, we have the NIV commentaries. We have all these different commentaries, the Matthew Henry commentaries, and they all kind of give their commentaries on the Bible. Well, the Jews for centuries had rabbis that would do all these teachings on the, uh, on the Old Testament, and, and they would call the Midrash. And so they would have these teachings on them. One thing that came out that was very clear to them was that God had a council. Did you know God had a council? You all look at me like, what? What is he talking about? There's a council. There's a council in heaven, believe it or not. And they are consisted of the Ben Elohim. If you read Isaiah chapter 6, 1 Kings 22, when Elijah shares his vision, speaks of this, this council in heaven, when he talks to Ahaz, who complains that he's always saying some bad things about me. Um, chapter 22 in 1 Kings, and especially in... Psalm 82, verse 1 and verses 6 to 7, it says this, God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. I said, you are God, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall as one man, O princes. I don't know what this council, uh, how it works, we see a bit of it in the book of Revelation as well, towards the end, but I don't know how it works. All I know is that there are beings set apart who do a special work, and that work is to come before God, and He pronounces His work, and they make sure it gets done. They also report to Him. In 1 Kings 22, there is a report that one of the Ben Elohim make to God. So who are these beings? And guess who's one of them? 
Anyone want to guess? Satan. It doesn't come out well in the English. Because in the English, it looks like he's just tagged along. But in the Hebrew, it's quite clear he's one of them. He's just not there for the ride. He's just not like hitched a ride, oh, they're going into a meeting quick, I'll run in, you know. No, it's actually quite clear that he is part of this group. He is a Ben LLM. Wow, really? How does that work? That was his role. And it also enhances even more, if you read the Hebrew, how casual God responds to Satan, as though he's supposed to be there. There is no, um, uh, you know, in the Hebrew, there's, a, there's, a, there's two types of Hebrew. There's the, the, the common Hebrew, and then there's the, the uh, I can't think of the word in English, but um, the, the proper Hebrew. So when you're addressing somebody, and it's formal, and then there's the casual speak. He's got the casual speak going here. Hey, and we read this in the next verse, the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Hey, what do you think? Huh? That there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Ooh, hey, buddy, do you see my, my good old servant down there, Job? Isn't he great? Isn't he great? Now, there's one thing we need to understand. The Jew, uh, mainline Judaism does not believe in the Satan-type figure that we believe in in the New Testament. You know why? Anyone know why? Because they believe the role that this Satan is playing is an appropriate role, a role that has been designated to him, and that's why he's called the adversary or the challenger would be a more appropriate word. It's actually a designated task that he does. In the Jewish court systems, there is always the challenger. And so they they see him as just an angel that's doing his job. We see it a little bit deeper than that because we encounter him at that next stage in the New Testament. You with me? So when we see this, we think, oh, there's evil Satan ready to... Well, actually, it sounds like he's doing his job because when he responds, he says, hey, does God... Uh, Does Job fear God for no reason? You've put a hedge around him and around his house and all that he has on every side. You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord to do the task that he was assigned. (laughs) That is where we come to a crunch. That is where we now sit here and think, what is going on? This is not the God I believe in. This can't be happening. How can he do this? How could he do this? The real question, uh, the challenge that Satan is putting here is, is Job truly righteous or is his righteousness solely tied to his position in life? And Job is challenging God. He says, he's, he's righteous because you've looked after him, but take it away from him and he won't be righteous anymore. 
And you know what? Satan has been doing that ever since. He's learnt his role as the adversary, as the challenger. And now that he's tied to this earth, how does he think he challenges us? How do you think he attacks us? He's learnt well. He knows his role and he knows us. Immediately he turns to God and says, this human is only happy because he's got all the little things in life sorted out and you've looked after him. But you take that away from him, I'll bet you any money he's going to curse you to your face. Do you think he's got a point? Does he think he knows humanity relatively well? Because this is what he does. He attacks us. Are you truly a follower of God or is this just makeup? Have you done your face up in the morning just to look like you're a Christian? But really, if I throw some water on there, it's just going to all flow away. Because he attacks us at these very basic things. Do you believe only when things are going well for you? Is that really the only time you believe? Is that the only time you're a good Christian? When things are going really well for you? What about when things aren't going so well? Where are you? What are you about? How do you change when the good now turns into the bad? Who is God for you? Because this becomes a very basic question. Do you truly believe in God or have you just made him up? Is he an image or a figment of who you think he should be? Because when things go bad, we tend to distort our view of God. How tied are you to your vision of God and how does that differ from a biblical vision? And here he is attacking your righteousness. Things just don't seem to be working, huh? I guess God is not in this. Huh? How does that change your vision of God? Are you allowing the circumstances of your experience change your view of who God is? Has tradition replaced truth in your Christian walk? How much of what you have is God's? We read that verse, uh, you give and you take away. You give and you take away. Give, but please don't take away. Oh, hang on, this is mine. I'm going to hold on to it. How much of what you have is God's? And if it is his, it's not his right to take away. And how much of you is God's? How much of you is God's? And I think this is the fundamental question that we're faced with. Because Satan will challenge you. Are you truly God's? Look, at the end of the day, whether I'm naked or not, the question still stands, am I his all or am I not? And this is a difficult book and it's going to be a difficult word, but the challenge, I hope, will be an encouraging one because we're going to look at some things, we're going to try and answer some of these questions and hopefully put some feet to a book that can be very difficult to understand. The one challenge I want to lay at your feet, though, is this. A lot of you have read Job and you've asked the wrong questions. The answers are there. you just got to have the right questions. 
In, in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John are going through the temple and the beggar asks for money. And what does Peter do? Anyone remember that scene? Peter heals him. That's not what the beggar asked for. He asked for money. And, and Peter heals him. Now, never in the beggar's mind did it ever think, ever come to his mind that he could actually ask for healing. He's just trying to live. And sometimes we are trying to live and we're asking the wrong questions, not realising that maybe if we ask the right questions, those answers now will appear. You with me? And that's what we're going to try and do through this book. We're going to try and look at these things. Satan is going to challenge your faith. He is going to challenge who you are. He's going to challenge your identity. And he's going to challenge your relationship with God. Just for a moment, forget about your friends. Forget about your partners or your kids. For a moment, just think about your relationship with God. And when he attacks that, how is he hurting us? He has you questioning God. When we're hurting, when we're suffering, the earthquakes, the homes, the frustrations, the kids, the parents, the the roads, the taxes, the money, all of this adds up and we start to question God. This is Satan at his best. Question God. He has you questioning your faith. I'm a pastor. I've been doing this for many, many years. I have degrees, both under and postgraduate, and yet I still struggle with this, and I question my faith. And like Peter, at times I find myself sitting in in that courtyard with people saying, do you know Jesus? He's your friend. And sometimes I get all cross. Really? Because the hurt and the pain sometimes just really kind of digs deep. And if I'm at that place, where are you guys at? It's okay to be real. But he wants you to be questioning your faith. Question God. Question your belief in him. And then he has you holding tighter to the things of this world. The more we hurt, the more we we suffer. Those of us who suffered as kids and as we grow up, what happens is not only do we start questioning God or questioning our faith, we become very tight about our belongings, about our things, because they're the only things that we have control over. Our homes, our cars, or our, our, our hobbies, or, or, or even the people that we love, our kids, our, our, our spouses, They become idols in our lives because we hold tight to them because we're afraid. We're questioning God. We're questioning, this is Satan still pulling at you. Yeah, yeah, you're suffering now. Hey, look at you guys. You've suffered an earthquake. That's horrible. That's terrible. Man, you better hold on to what you have. Forget about the fact that even with what we go through here, we're still in the top five percentile in the world. Don't want to minimize anyone's pain. But Satan has that knack of focusing in on ourselves and we start to come tighter to things of this world and we lose perspective. We lose perspective. 
He has you turning the things that are God's to the things that are yours. That's why churches struggle so much. The hurt and the pain, the suffering that happens in church translates into me either holding tightly to the ministry that's mine or the church that is mine or the music that is mine. All this develops, overflows, and what happens is I start turning what's God's into what's mine. This is an outpouring of hurt. This is an outpouring of pain. And this is Satan attacking. It's my worship. Where am I? Where's my music? It's my pastor. They can make little dolls of me, I guess, but... Well, they'll be big dolls, wouldn't they? Anyway. (laughs) But this is the truth. We start to hold tightly to things. And then... He turns you disappointed, disappointed in who God is, disappointed in in Christianity, disappointed in the church, disappointed in the system, distrustful, distrustful of anything that's in in place, distrustful of God, distrustful of his leadership, distrustful of of, 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 of the people around you, and also disorientated, disorientated from where he was leading you. You now don't know where you're going anymore. There is no more purpose in your life. You're kind of floating from one thing to another. You, you kind of make decisions on the go. You know, this is the outpouring of suffering, pain, hurt, and Satan attacks us right there. Right there. Disappointed, distrustful, disorientated. And the problem when we get a church full of people who are disappointed, distrustful, and disorientated, how's that going to work, people? How's that going to work? then we wonder why we have difficult meetings or we have conflict that happens so often or or wonder why the churches are going down. I mean, we're not growing. Not just us, the power of the church. It's growing in countries where you just can't believe it's growing, where they had the most oppression, where they had the most pain, where they had the most suffering and where it should be growing, where we have everything, it's not. It's not. It's because this has happened. We've allowed Satan to kind of step in and using our hurt and our pain, he's turned us disappointed, he's turned us distrustful, and he's completely and absolutely disorientated us. You know, I've got to be honest with you, I feel all, one, all those three things right now. All those three things, I feel them. I don't know if you do, but I'm beginning to feel disappointed. I didn't sign up for this. I was quite happy in D.C., I had a church that was making a lot of money with good people, growing. We started from 90-odd people. We ended up over 200 in the space of three years. Woohoo! We're doing great stuff. We had rearranged the whole church. We had changed it. We were doing great. I didn't come here for the earthquakes. No one told me about that. Didn't even give me time to rest, unpack. I didn't even, I didn't even have my stuff here when the first one hit. I thought, oh, God, thank you. You saved my stuff because, you know, it came in a couple of weeks after that earthquake. No, February came. So just to make sure that it didn't break the first time, we'll make sure it breaks the second time. I didn't sign up for this. I'm disappointed. I'm distrustful. What's going to happen next? On Monday, when they're saying this is the worst storm in 20 years, I'm thinking the worst. Right? I'm thinking the worst. I'm so distrustful. Okay, we're going to be... I mean, everybody thought it. We all ran to... I mean, countdown was half empty. 
I had to buy the Meadow Lean milk, which is a dollar more than the cheap one. That's how desperate I was. Talk about wood. There was no wood for miles. There were people cutting their own trees down. We're distrustful. We don't know what's going to happen because we're so distrustful. We're disorientated. You know what, guys? I'll be honest with you. As your pastor, I am totally disorientated. I came here with a very clear vision. I knew why God brought me here. And there are some days, even in this last week, where I'm scratching my head thinking, what am I doing here? What, what am I doing here? I kind of feel like I'm, ugh. <laughs> you know, when you get slapped too many times, you're just kind of dazed around. What, is it that way? And some of us here feel that way as well. Don't allow Satan to step in and let that happen. Don't allow him to start questioning God in your life or your faith. The more you find yourself holding on to the things of this earth, of this world, that should be a red light for you. Whoa, hang on. Why? What's going on? Where's the pain? Where's the hurt that I'm feeling? Why is this happening? Why? It's an interesting dichotomy in this opening verses of this book. And there's one word in particular. No, it's not Obama. Who knew that Obama was Jewish, huh? Did you guys know this? Barak has three meanings. And go figure this, huh? It means to curse, to bless, to praise. Does that make sense to anybody in this room? Isn't that funny how Hebrew language works? But in those opening verses where, where Job is afraid that his kids might have cursed God, he's using Barach. When, jo- when Satan tells to God, he will curse you to your face, he's using the same word Barach. And it's such a fine line between cursing and blessing in Hebrew. And it's such a fine line that we could easily slip into Satan's realm or purposely turn to God's world. Barach is an incredible word. I love the imagery of the Hebrew language. We don't have it as much in the English language. But this one word can mean such polar opposites. And that's the challenge we have this morning. And the challenge for you is we go deeper into this book. Is it a curse or a blessing? Because sometimes it feels like a curse and other times it feels like a blessing. But you have a choice in that matter. I'll unpack unpack that over the next few weeks. Poor old Job. But if there's one statement I want to make and I will make over the next few weeks, it's this one statement. If righteousness before God is all, is all that Job values, then it doesn't matter what happens to him. That cannot be taken away from him. If all you care about is your relationship, you being right before God, then there is nothing Satan can do to you. He can take everything away, but he can't take that away. And this is the spine of the book of Job. This is what keeps that book all together. 
And this is the challenge we're going to face. If righteousness before God is all that Job values, you know what? Satan can strip him naked, take everything away from him, but Satan cannot take that relationship away from him. And if that's all that matters to Job, hey, he's okay. I go back to what I shared before. How tightly are you holding on to the things of this world? How tight is your relationship with God? Because this comment is going to come up every week. Because I want to challenge us that there's nothing wrong with what we have. And there's nothing wrong in loving what we have. But what's keen and what's most important is our relationship with God. Now, poor old Job, he's going to experience this to the fullest of the extent of anything that we can possibly imagine. But this beginning part of Job is so important because it sets the tone for the rest of the book. It lays down the foundation. And real quickly, there are four things you need to know that comes out of the beginning of this. First of all, Job is innocent of any wrongdoing. He hasn't done anything wrong. Okay? And his friends will come out and say, what have you done wrong? What have you done He hasn't done anything wrong. We saw it at the beginning there, didn't we? He's blameless and upright. And what was Satan saying? Well, if I do this to him, you'll see how upright he'll be. Did he do anything? Nothing at all. He is completely innocent. The other thing is, he's not on trial. This is not about Job, believe it or not. Sometimes we focus in on Job and we forget the core issue. And the core issue is not Job, it's God. So you've got to kind of change your thinking here for a moment. It's called the book of Job, but it's not about Job. He's not the protagonist, even though he's quite in there a lot. It's God. It's not Job on trial. We've already proven he's innocent. Job is ignorant of the decisions made in heaven. Do you think Job's life would have been made a little bit easier if he knew about this little discussion between Satan and God? It would have made his life just a little... We, would have, we wouldn't have to go through 39 chapters. <laughs> oh, the poor guy. We need to understand that we are ignorant of the decisions that are made in heaven. We don't know them. We don't see the big picture. Yeah, hey, parents, how many times do you tell your kids this? Huh? How many times do you tell your kids this? I know because I've been there. Yeah, right, mom. Right, dad. You know nothing. No, look, I'm serious. I had a 16-year-old girl last week. I was teaching, well, we're talking about sex. It, it, it grow. And a 16-year-old kid wants to tell me all about it. I said, sorry, but I think I know more than you. Apart from the fact that I am 20 years older than you. Well, actually 25, but anyway. But it's funny that. And we want to do the same with God. We want to tell him, hey, we know what's going on. Well, we don't. And we need to understand that. Job is ignorant of the decisions that are made in heaven. And this is the punchline. And this is what we're going to seek to answer over the course of the next few weeks. God both initiated the discussion and approved the course of action. Satan didn't come to him talking about Job. It was God who started the conversation. And it was God who approved the course of action. How does that sit with you? 
That's a tough one. Because at the end of the day, we're going to seek to answer that question. Why, God? Why would you do this? Why would you do this to an innocent man? Why? Sometimes we focus on Satan's role in this and we think, it's Satan, look what Satan just did. Oh, that's so evil of Satan. Well, hang on a second. God approved it. And frankly, if I were Job, I would have rather died than have gone through what he went through. Who's with me on that? Yep. But God actually spares him, which I think is even more cruel than... <laughs> so why? There is an answer. And it will bring soothing to your heart. It will uplift you. It will show you how loving and great a God we have. And even though you're looking at me now thinking, how are you going to answer that? How does this book answer that after what you've just said this morning? Let me assure you that we have a great God who loves us deeply. And though it might be difficult for us to see that right now, let me assure you, when your eyes are open, there will be hallelujahs in this place. There will be hallelujahs in this place. Our God is a good God. Sometimes our kids don't understand why we do things to them. But it's funny how when they become parents, they turn to us and say, Mom, Dad, if only I'd known how bad I was. Or if only I'd listened to you. When you say, I know exactly what you mean now. And you shake your head, you, you, know, you nod, and you think, yeah, baby. Scars running down, you know. Get, let me get that axe out of my back, you know. It's the truth. Suffering and pain is part of life. But what do you hold dear to most? And I want to challenge you this morning. Where are your priorities in your life? I'm not going to challenge you on what your life is like. I'm just going to challenge you on your relationship with God. Because at the end of the day, that's one thing Satan cannot take away from you. He cannot take that away from you. And if you've got more invested in the things around you, let me warn you now, those things can come and go. But your relationship with God is eternal. And that should be number one. Amen?